Hey, friends and colleagues, it's Nikki from Full Voice Music on the podcast today, episode 93. This is part one of a two-part interview with my good friend, Justin Peterson. Justin is a private voice teacher and a college audition coach from Boston, Massachusetts. He works with singers of all ages and abilities. His teaching philosophy is so inspiring. Now, our conversation today is about historical vocal pedagogy and its place in our teaching studios today. A fantastic conversation right here on the Full Voice Podcast. Welcome to the Full Voice Podcast, teaching strategies and resources for voice teachers working with young singers. Now, here's your host, Nikki Loney. Welcome to the podcast, my dear friend, Justin Peterson. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I have been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. I have a feeling that this could be like, I don't know, a 12-part podcast because... <laughs> Well, the way I talk, it probably will be. Well, because you just, it's, well, first of all, it's a fascinating topic. We are talking today about historical pedagogy. Now, do you say pedagogy or pedagogy? I'm a pedagogy person. Okay. That's, but that's, you know, that okay. could change next year. <laughs> that could change. Yeah, there could be a paper written about it and we'll yeah, have to I, change. Exactly. I would suggest. Well, we're talking about historic pedagogy and its place in our teaching studios, um, and and being able to uh, to use it in a positive way to help our students and also to grow as teachers. Um, but before we dive into this crazy, exciting topic, can you just let everybody know a little bit about your background, um, w- how you got started, and what led you into teaching voice? Yes. So I grew up. This is always my funny little story. I grew up on a farm south of Kansas City in Missouri in a town called Peculiar, Missouri. And it's really called Peculiar. <laughs> it's really the name of it. It's really the name of it. And my mother had a beautiful alto voice. My dad was a singer. Um, my grandmother was actually a music teacher in Kansas City for 35 years. Wow. She was the chair of the vocal the Kansas City uh, school voice program that was all of the all of the high schools around and middle schools around Kansas City. She kind of ran that program for a while, um, and I just grew up around music my entire life. I don't think there was anything else I was ever interested in, no matter what my parents tried to put me into. I always came back to music <laughs> and um, started singing professionally when I was ten years old, and I started wow. singing con- country music. So I was singing, yeah. So yeah. So, <laughs> that so is I, why we're soulmates. That's I sang country music as a young performer. Yeah. Oh my gosh! I, mean, I always tell people there are stories there. There's emotion there. Oh, you know what yeah. I mean? There's there's there is intense feeling, and it's just heartfelt. And I, I would say that I'm not the only person. We're not the only ones because a lot of very well-known singers actually started out singing folk songs too. So that went into classical music. You know, that even went into classical mm. music. But um, I did a lot of performing as a young kid. I wanted to be a recording star in Nashville. That was my first dream in life, was to go to Nashville and be a singer. And then my parents were like, well, let's go to college. So I, <laughs> so I went to college for music, and um, and then I got my master's degree uh, in uh, uh, in opera at the University of Kansas. 
and then um, spent the next several years performing in different operas around the country, um, different opera companies. And in, I want to say around 2004, 2005, had some vocal difficulties. And I think that might have been what set me on my path to learn as much as I could learn about the voice because I had always sung, and I think, of course, sung well. <laughs> I mean, for my own, you know, standards, mm -hmm. I, I'd, I'd accomplished things, and I thought, well, I know how to do this. Now, why isn't it working anymore? Why wow. is this thing that I've been able to do since I was a child not working anymore? So I just wanted answers. So I looked, you know, I went to the medical establishment, and I read different things, and I, I basically just read everything I could, could get my hands on. And that's sort of how it all started for me. And, and then... Um, I had taught a little bit in uh, undergraduate school uh, during some summer camps and things, and, and I had, had enjoyed it. And in graduate school, I had a teaching assistantship, so I did teach there. And um, while I was working on my own uh, in my singing work, I did also teach as well. Um, but I, you know, of course, it's one of those things you start out and you're like, what do I do and how do I do it? And you have really no idea what's going on. <laughs> yes. So, oh boy. So, uh, you know. I just continued that work and studying and just continued to learn. Um, and the more I learned, the more rewarding it got, I think. The more mm. continuing development I did, the more I, the more I enjoyed it. And, and I think one of the things that's kind of uh, part of our conversation is the idea of, of reading all these books really helped form a sense of values as a mm. teacher, you know, and a sense of philosophy of voice, a philosophy of education based on a wide exposure to ideas. So I think that was one of the most, well, of many things, that was one of the very helpful things for me was to just kind of, what are, what do I value? What are my, what are my values personally as an educator? What are my values as a human being working with other human beings? And so that's where a lot of the value of that work came in. So yeah. And I find that I'm a person who isn't um, stuck in any one particular style of music, even though I have a classical background. Mm. Um, as a person who also experienced music that wasn't classical as a child and found those experiences very rewarding and very fulfilling, I understand that there's a lot of ways of expressing yourself as a musician in, with your voice that may not be classical. So that's another part of the equation for me is that you know I want people to know that I want them to sing better, no matter what they want to sing. Okay. So I don't, I don't try to make little, oh, I don't know, machines or something. Like, okay, do it this way, <laughs> way. Sure. right? So it's, it's a very flexible, student-oriented sort of philosophy, I guess you could say. So yeah, that's, I guess that's my story. And then I just started writing my blog. I want to say five or six years ago, probably more than that now if I think about it. But um, it was funny for me. It was just a way of sort of capturing what I was reading. The blog was really mm -hmm. just for me a way to kind of record information in sort of a database retrieval system sure. that was that was also public consumption as well um, so that I could just record quotes or record things that I really liked and then just kind of put them out there. So, I mean, the whole reason I did it was really more for selfish reasons because <laughs> I just wanted a way to capture the information that I was finding so interesting and so valuable for myself as a teacher. And I thought, well, maybe somebody else will be interested in that and that. And if they're not, then that's okay. I'll still keep doing it. I'll still, you know, cause really it was for me, it was for my own pleasure just to I, write things. I love it. I love it. I, that's how I discovered you. It was through your blog long before we had kind of met online, uh, your blog, uh, and, I think it was probably in the early days of your blog, but I discovered your blog 
and your writing and your holistic approach was so refreshing and <sighs> and I was just I was just taken. You 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 took my breath away and then and then you also left me with things to think about. And I was so I like I consumed almost I think there was an evening where I stumbled on your blog and I may have had a glass of wine. And I think <laughs> I and I think I read through everything you wrote and I was like, I love this man. <laughs> And that's how indirectly we met. That's how I learned Yay. about it. Well, I think my blog is best consumed with wine uh, and many ass some aspirin. Oh no, no, <laughs> um, no! It's it, it's wonderfully written, and I I loved the the references to to the teachings of many different teachers. The other thing that I love about your website, and I'm going to put a link for our listeners is your reading list on your blog is probably one of the most comprehensive and detailed reading lists I have ever seen in my entire life. Like, well, people are always asking me, where do I go to get, you know, where do I start? And I'm like, well, or they'd ask me, what are books you would recommend? And I'm sure. like, well, I have so many that I would recommend right. um, that, would, that should be just in the awareness of any any person interested in voice. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's so funny that, that you found that, that that's the most interesting part, or, you know, valuable part. Yeah. Oh, it's wonderful. It's so wonderful. Now, um, you're also, you're also doing, um, college auditions. You're working with a lot of yes. people working, getting, trying to get into college auditions and oh my gosh, yes. talk about the pressure on these <sighs> young people. Um, how, how do you approach that? How do you how do you approach the college auditionees? That is one of the most interesting. I mean, I obviously adore the voice and I adore all this, but this other piece is so interesting because it's it has for me. I, I it has challenged me in a very deep way because mm -hmm. when I first came into doing it, obviously I was a classically trained musician. My knowledge of the repertoire was largely classical. I mean, I could tell you all about Schubert's later Verdi's operas, <laughs> Rossini's compositional periods, Bellini, any of that stuff. I could just roll rattle off the, you know, the librettist for this opera, blah, 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 whatever, because that was my, that was my world. And I took this opportunity because I thought I want to grow. I want to grow as a teacher and I want to learn about things that I would never have the opportunity to learn about, mm. uh, in a, in a classical bubble say. And so I did this job and I could play the piano. One of the things that I might thank, thank you mother in heaven for the lessons that you put me into in first grade to mm. play the piano, you know, like here I am in first grade playing the piano and thank goodness because I did that my whole life and wow. I kept up my piano playing. I'm not the world's best piano player. I tell the kids that all the time. I'm a rehearsal pianist. I'm not a performance pianist. Right. And, um, I wanted to learn the repertoire. See, I wanted to learn oh. the deep musical theater repertoire. And so the first year I was doing that, it was very, um, very much imposter syndrome. I mm. very much felt like a total imposter. And I was like, I can tell you all about, you know, this opera. And they'd like, what? So I had to learn. And I thought, I got to meet these kids where they are. And so the first year or so was me just really catching up, playing mm. catch up, listening to the repertoire, learning as much as I could. How do I do it? When you ask me how I do it, I think of it like this. Now, these are my analogies. So I'm putting trademarks on them. I'm just okay. kidding. No, it's uh, good. no, but I'm not, not really. Um, I think of two things. I think of this situation as like trying on clothes. When I work with a new student, when I work with a student who comes into me, 
my first and most important criteria is that they love the repertoire that they're singing. Mm. That's number one. That is number one. And it has to do with the fact that they're going to live with that repertoire for quite some time. They're going to, that's going to be in their suitcase, right? That's their suitcase song. So I want them to love it. It's so important that they love it. And a lot of times these young students are in a mindset of, I'm the teacher, they're the student. And so when I work with them in the first session, I say, we are not in that relationship. We are in a co-working relationship together. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's a big step. I want a t-shirt. I want a t-shirt that says that, and I'm going to wear that to all my lessons. Oh, that is brilliant. Yeah. I don't think of myself as higher than or above them because, Mm. you know, one of my, this is going to be a tangent here, but one of my inspirations as an educator is the acting teacher Uta Hagen. And Uta Hagen used to always talk about the fact that you want to treat your students as if they were colleagues because they very well may be someday. And so that's kind of how I approach that whole thing. And when they come in there in high school, I teach them as if they were going to be working in a show with me. What do, you know, how would I treat oh, these kids if they brilliant. were in a show with me? Mm-hmm. Right. Because they very well could be someday or they, you know, we could be co- co-working in some capacity. So I assume that they want to do this. And then I say to them, the most important thing we can do is find you songs that fit who you are and speak for you. A lot of times kids come in and they think, well, I have to sing the highest note possible or I have right? to show up my bell. Yes. All right, show off my head voice. And honestly, I say to them, really, the best thing you can do is show who you are in that room. And I remind them, you're not auditioning for a part in a show. You're auditioning for yourself. You're auditioning to show something of who you are so that the college will get an idea of who you are as a person. So if you come in and you're like, well, I'm going to put on this fake persona or I'm going to put on this high comedy, uh, you know, kind of shtick, shtick, then mm-hmm. you're going to have a really hard time with that experience because they won't get to know you. They just will not get to know you. And so um, I do that first. And then what I do is I just work them through lots of different repertoire. And I, I ask them, you know, what do, you know, what have you sung in the past? What has appealed to you in the past? What do you not like? I also ask things nowadays, like what pronouns do you want to use in songs? You know, that's very, you know, Who are you comfortable singing to as a scene partner is, you know, some students walk in and they say, I don't want to sing songs about love because I don't relate to that. And I'm like, great. So that's all information for me to help me find the repertoire that they need. And so what we do is we, we try on outfits basically. So we just, I give them a bunch of songs and I say, try these on and they will come back to me and, and have worked up these songs. They don't have to be memorized or anything like that, but they just have to have familiarity with them. And then I'll just see how those work. How do those songs work in the voice? Sometimes a song that doesn't work can make me think of another song that will work, right? Well, that doesn't work, but maybe this will work. So it can be a little bit of rabbit holing there for a while, Mm. but we try to find out. But I do always try to fit the song to every student's particular, not just vocal abilities, but also who they are as a person and who they are as a human being. You know, does this song speak for you? Are these lyrics your words? Um, and then we, and then we kind of go from there, you know, and it's very personal and, and then we make cuts of that repertoire. Uh, and then we try to get tracks, which I have a whole, that could be a whole podcast on why I don't like that. (laughs) (laughs) Just because, you know, my personal feeling is that if a student is going to go into school for musical theater, the whole art of musical theater is built upon collaboration. And if you have a, if you do not have a pianist in the room, you're basically 
taking away one of the most essential elements of what makes musical theater what it is, which is that collaborative musicianship with another human being. So when they have a track, I'm kind of like, well, what's that all about? So anyway, that's my personal opinion. No, you're right. Uh, I I know that... uh, um it's a, it's a totally different uh, energy too for them as well. And when I know many teachers, myself included, getting the, uh, the funds, whether it's funds or time or finding that collaborative pianist to come and work with the, with your students is so important, but totally, you you bring up a really good point. It's just such an essential part of that life in musical theater, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's opera or whether it's musicals or, it's the idea of being able to be a musician with someone else. You know, I know a lot of acting teachers are like, well, you know, the acting, but I always say, well, it, then do a play, right? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> do, then do a play. I mean, if you want to be just an acting person and not care about the score and not care about the music and the rhythms and the markings and the tempi and all of that stuff, then just do a play. Like literally just do a play. Um, music exists for a particular reason that enhances characterization. So I'm always trying to, you know, have the students figure out what is the what is what's written here say about what's going on. Sometimes it's lying, right? Sometimes sometimes in a song, I'll say, "Do you notice how the music is not supporting anything this character is saying?" Maybe they're lying, and then the student goes, <gasps> "You know," or it shifts, right? Like it, it, suddenly there's a giant. Um, maybe a modulation. I'm like, what does that mean? You know, what's going on there? You know, so it's never devoid from characterization. I always, uh, I always uh, try to engage my students in active listening. And and I'm always like, why do you think the composer did that? I think the most important thing anyone can do of any level of musicianship is to ask the question, why? Right. You know, why? Why staccato and why not tenuto? You know, why Alargando and why not crescendo? You know, any of those questions. Or why why get louder? Why do this? Why, why, why? I think if you just sat down and asked the why question with a score, it could just yield gold. You could find all kinds of gold in that. Uh, what know, an amazing they... teacher takeaway right there. Yeah, right why? There. Oh, I love it. I love it. Why? What does it mean? Because I think the thing that you and I have maybe experienced in our world that we live in is we get so technically oriented with the voice that we oftentimes forget the aim of everything we're doing here is to ultimately make music. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to the music making, if the voice is in perfect working order and yet isn't musical, well, the whole point of the education has been missed. Mm -hmm. Like we've missed the whole point. Um, So... That for me is where the rubber meets the road, because as you and I both know, an imperfect voice can still be one of the most engagingly expressive musical instruments ever. And a it's voice true. that's maybe well-organized can be flat because it, just ha- it doesn't sing, right? It just yeah. doesn't have anything to say. So, yeah, yeah. And now for the My Music Staff Minute. Hey, podcast listeners. Aaron here to talk to you about automated lesson reminders. Have you had to deal with students that forget about their lesson times? Still have families that message you weekly to confirm what time their class is at? Setting up automated lesson reminders will solve both of these problems once and for all, which allows you to focus on the important stuff, your business. Automating your lesson reminders is your one-way ticket to improving studio communication and eliminating excuses without any additional work on your end. Besides their main purpose of reminding a student about their lesson, they can also be helpful in many other instances. Aside from including the basic info like the start time, event type, and location, you could even include whether or not an item you lent to the student is now due back. You may even choose to share your cancellation policy, so if a student can't attend their lesson, 
the automated message could remind them to reach out and notify you of the upcoming absence. This ensures that you don't get stuck waiting for a student that won't show and gives you time to fill in that lesson slot with another student. To take this a step further, applications like My Music Staff offer student portal access, which ensures that all of your cancellations and scheduling can be done through the application without your input. It's all automated by the studio policies you define. If you're sending out automated lesson reminders, stick to a couple of key rules. Keep it short and sweet. Don't overwhelm your families with emails or texts. Be sure to personalize the message by using placeholders for your recipient's name, lesson time, and whatever else you see fit. Lastly, remind them to log into the student portal if they have any questions regarding their schedule, because everything they need to know will be listed in there. You can start your 30-day free trial of My Music Staff today at mymusicstaff.com. Stay tuned for next week's tips and tricks on the My Music Staff Minute, exclusively on the Full Voice Podcast. Right. It just doesn't yeah. have anything to say. Yep. Oh, so, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Now let's, I'm, I'm excited. Let's dive in to some of, where do you want to start? Like, would you oh, pick any a, place. Do we want to pick a date? Do you want to go, do you want to oh, go right back to the earliest documentation? <laughs> You're talking about the Greeks? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You want to talk about modes, don't you? I really know you want to talk about modes. <laughs> okay, you know, no. I've had many conversations about modes, but but my background in college was jazz, so it always kind of got stuck there. there you so go. there you go. People I, think, people, I think it's always for me when I talk. I never, I guess I I'm historically ADD in that I kind of jump around with things. Well, let's I never do kind it. Of, let's kind do of, it. I love it. But I think that like the comment about why history is important or what is the, mm. what is the purpose? What is it? And I think I wanted to, I really had thought about this in terms of what I wanted to speak about today was that we are oftentimes like fish in water when it comes to the world that we live in. We have assumptions about things in our teaching and in our pedagogy that are just part of the German word zeitgeist that we live in, right? The time that we live in. There are unquestioned assumptions, unquestioned beliefs. And the purpose of history for me is that it's supposed to educate us about where we're at with things. Mm -hmm. And it can be sort of a benchmark about our current status. Um, I would say that we look a at these older texts sometimes and we can laugh at them or we can, you know, say, Oh, they didn't know anything. Ha ha ha. You know, I think that's the it, sort of the pervasive attitude that, that comes a lot of the time when we're talking about history, you know, this idea of, well, we're so much better than they were back then. Right. Mm -hmm. We're so much better. Um, which is to quote C.S. Lewis, a form of chronological snobbery, right? <laughs> we, yes. We kind of think, the only time that we live in, the only, you know, the time that we live in is the best time. Of course. And, all, you know, we're doing the best things now. And then I, I say to that, well, I, I'm lucky that I got to go to Italy last year. And one of the experiences that I had in Italy was standing under the shadow of the Duomo in Florence. Right. And I tell you, as a teacher of voice, and especially a teacher of voice who's very much into classical pedagogical information, pre-scientific, let's say, I, I suddenly was struck by an immense experience of beauty and staggering achievement that was done without the aid of computers, mm. you know, that was done without the aid of, 
of high technological architectural materials and things. And I thought, wow, man is really able to do fantastic things with the knowledge at hand. Sure. So that's kind of what I come to in the pedagogy. It's like, I think people throughout all the eras of our, of our teaching epochs, uh, did have done amazing things. And we look at them now and, the, and we can say, well, they didn't know this, they didn't know that. But yet the achievements sort of speak for themselves. So um, I'm not really a person who falls into the camp of, uh, you know, well, it's so silly, they didn't know anything about science, and ha, 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 and we know so much more about acoustics and formants than they did, and we're so much better than they are. Um, I think it's a very, honestly, it's a very egotistical mindset, right? Mm-hmm. It's a very mindset because um, we are going to be laughed at in 150 years or 250 years. When people look at the information that we have published and that we have put out into the world, people collectively in, in the future will look at us and laugh at our stupidity. And they'll say, they were so dumb. Those people back then using all those straws, they had no idea what they were doing. (laughs) How ridiculous was that? I mean, we don't know because that's the time we live in. That's just the time that we live in. So um, the value of it is, I think, not in its memorization of facts and figures and saying, oh, well, I know that Garcia wrote his book in 1841 and blah, 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 blah. (laughs) It's really about what does it teach us today? What Mm. does it tell us today about this thing that we're doing in the creative performing arts. What does it teach us? It may, be a, it may be the lesson has changed a little bit, but it still has things to teach. I always say, history doesn't repeat, but it sure does rhyme. Oh, profound. I like that. Like a lot of the times, well, for example, the, 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 the much of the belting conversations that we're having with women today, it's voices. If you look at the historical literature, you realize that in the middle of the 1800s, in roughly the 1840 to 1850-60, we were having the exact same conversation about the men's voice. Really? So men just got there. And just got there 150 years earlier than women did, because men in the pre, let's say, well, I'll say pre-crisis because that's kind of what it was for the pre-crisis of the 19th century. Men sang in a much more head-dominated upper register sound than we came to accept later on in classical music. So in a way, men were singing with a chest on the bottom and a little bit more of the head falsetto on the top. Then that, uh, you know, infamous uh, Gilbert-Louis Dupre came along, that Mm. French tenor, Mm. 1837, and sang his high C from the chest. And everything got all mumble-jumbled up. And then suddenly the the public taste shifted, right? So all of the weren't going to accept that old way of singing anymore because they were paying for the tickets. And it was like, we don't want to hear that old way of singing. We want to hear this brand new way of singing. So then all of these singers scrambled to try and make the, you know, adjustment to the (laughs) singing in that way. And the voice teachers, unfortunately, were kind of like, well, all of the pedagogical information that we have didn't really get us prepared to be able to do whatever this is. So in a way, we're living the same experience today with the female belt voice. Wow. That is so fascinating. I had no idea. So it just, it just rhymes. It just rhymes. It just it's rhymes. the same experience from the middle of the of the 19th century that we're having, but now we're doing it with women instead of men. Okay. I would like, because this has always been my evil agenda, which is about working with children, and there is still... Uh, there is still conversation. There's still people that feel that we should not be training children's voices. What does history tell us about that? 
Well, I'll tell you, you know, if you look at the castrati, which were those men oh. that were unfortunately emasculated, right, mm -hmm. in this beginning, way, this that's a tradition that goes back thousands of years, mm -hmm. right? That's a thousands of years old tradition. Uh, those young boys were put into school and singing at seven, okay. eight years of age, very young. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, their voices didn't change, right? Like the natural voice of today would change over time mm -hmm. with puberty. Uh, but their training was, and you're going to love this, mostly in solfeggio, right? <gasps> so they were learning. <laughs> so they were learning to read solfege. They were learning to compose writing tunes. And the thing that I love that to me just staggers my mind as a voice teacher is that their voice teachers would literally write exercises or compositions for their particular voices that mm -hmm. would deal with a technical issue or something that was going on with their voice. Their voice teacher would just write them a little song. And so they would try to solve the issue through the song that they were singing. But the idea that children shouldn't sing, uh, uh, I, I, I am a child who sang. And I am a child who sang from the age of two, professionally since 10. Yeah. And I, I think, <laughs> I, this isn't my quote, but uh, you know, a, a person should avoid bad teaching for as long as possible. <laughs> <laughs> right? So you wait as long as you can. You know what I mean? If you're going to have a, a bad instruction, then please wait as long as you possibly can wait. But uh, I think if the, the teacher is conscientious, if the teacher is understands the young voice and understands that singers of this age have obviously particular um, limitations on their instrument and what they can do, but, but, but operate within the framework of that instrument's capacity, I think, why not give children that wonderful experience of singing? I mean, I have several young children in my studio as well because I love working with students of all ages, but I don't, uh, I don't, I think that's a, that's an antiquated idea probably mm -hmm. from the early or the late 19th century, that somehow they thought something they would, you know, do damage to a singer's voice if they, you well, know. I, I also think, well, a lot of it had to do with that master-apprentice approach. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody does well with the master-apprentice approach. Like you were saying at the beginning of our interview, where you come in and you are co-learning with the student, that... Yeah. That is the approach that we need with, with all of our students, and especially with children. I mean, children, they constantly surprise me with their insight. And I am always, I am always, tr I try to be mindful, but sometimes I just think that they're going to miss this concept. But no, nope, they get it right away. And if you give them that opportunity, man, they are, they are the, the most incredible teachers you could ever have. Mm. I learn so much from my kiddos. Oh, me too. I mean, that's, I learn so much from my students. Uh, it's, it's, it's shocking. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say to your point earlier, the oldest traditions of teaching students to sing was always usually done in a, in a classroom situation or a group situation. Sure. Because students could learn from each other. Mm. So this this one on one instruction that we think of as so you know common today, you know two hundred years ago was not you know that was very much in a group mm -hmm. situation, especially with young young students. Mm -hmm. That students would learn from each other. They would hear each other perform or sing and go, oh yeah, they did that or I hear that because not only were they developing their own musicianship skills and their own singing, but they were also developing their ears. Right. So, yes. so that they could they could hear in other singers something that was maybe good or maybe needed work. You know, my mm -hmm. favorite quote is 
one of my definitely my favorite quotes is from Maria Callas uh, when she was in school in uh, Greece and I think in Athens and she was coming early in the morning to school leaving at the with the very last person at the end of the day and her voice teacher Elvira de Hidalgo asked her one day why are you why are you coming here so much like why do you come with this person and stay till this last person she said even the least talented pupil can teach you something that you may not be able to do yourself wow I love that quote. And I thought that is the, that is the brain of a great learner. You know, Mm -hmm. that is the brain of someone who sees the value in learning from all angles, right? Mm -hmm. Even the least talented pupil can show you something that you yourself may not be able to do. So I love that. Love that. Just love that quote, because I really think that that group situation, when you have all those students together, they can so much learn from each other, you know, and all different voices and different abilities and different musical qualities. Mm-hmm. I, I just, uh, I think that's, I love what you said about, about being a good learner. That is something I don't, <laughs> I don't see as much anymore. The people's willingness to just open up and, and take the information as data rather than right. rather than as criticism or right, right. Or, um, I think this is a Seth Godin quote, but I'm using it all the time. You know, take it seriously, not personally. Right. I'm going to roll you back though into history because this it. particular mindset that we have, we have inherited. Right. Oh. So we we have inherited this sort of give it to me now mentality. Mm-hmm. And my personal belief is that that all started, again, in that crisis period in the 19th century. Because before that time, training, even by mid-19th century standards, was a slow process. Right. And acknowledged as such. It was acknowledged as a slow process. And Garcia came along, and he was the son of a, a famous tenor, and said, hey, these vocal studies are really irksome. Those were his exact words. Those were his exact words. <laughs> Well, not his exact words, but his biographer's words. He found them irksome, right? All of this solfeggio, it's very irksome. (laughs) So (laughs) he probably had Qatar the whole time. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But uh, no, he he was very frustrated Hmm. by the length of time that it took. And so he really wanted to speed up that process. And so that kind of came along with that 19th century zeitgeist, again, the time that people lived in, Mm -hmm. in that industrial revolution, where suddenly we moved from a more agricultural culture to much more of a productor, you know, production factory oriented Mm -hmm. culture. Mm -hmm. And the mentality of give it to me now, I want it now. I mean, the cotton gin alone. I mean, if you think about people by hand picking cotton in a field versus a machine that then comes along and just kind of does it? I mean, right. the speed and tempo of life picked up to such a degree that people became very, very impatient with any kind of long-term application of, of study or, mm. or wanting to really go deep in their studies. And I think today now with the technology being, it's even faster. So if, if the 19th century was fast and the 20th century was faster than that, my goodness, you know, we're at breakneck speed. Oh, I know. And I think I think one of the things that I always try to impress upon my students of all ages is that this is a process. This is not done, unfortunately, in a lesson a week or in a month or in two months. This is a physical process that goes on for a long time if you're really dedicated to it. 
And it's funny because people make no distinction on that when it comes to exercise or, or diet or physical training of any kind. You know, if you want to lose weight, you realize there are things I need to do on a consistent basis to achieve what I want to achieve. Or if I want to do a particular thing in the gym, I need to show up and I need to com- continue to show up day after day after day. And that is the process. And a lot of people say, well, you know, um, uh, motor learning theory says X, Y, or Z, we shouldn't do this all every day. But the thing is, is that it depends on, I guess, how you're doing it, right? I mean, if you're going, I could not, I could not squat 280 pounds every day, <laughs> but, but, but I could do it every two or three days. Sure. It doesn't mean that the, in the interim days, I'm not going to be doing other things. Like so, reaching for the Advil. Right. Or, <laughs> or soaking in Epsom salts or whatever, you know, whatever you do. But uh, no, the idea of pro—I mean, the, the idea of process is something we we do not question when it comes to the human body. Mm. Only with the human voice, which interestingly is still in the human body, right? <laughs> right? It's still your body. So uh, this sort of patience with the process, to me, and what I understand of these historical writings, was de rigueur. It was absolutely a foregone conclusion that if you were going to study voice, it was going to take time, and you were going to just need to apply yourself and work and. It, just going to be slow. But at the end of it, you're going to have exactly what you want. Hmm. And that's hard for us because sometimes we can't see the end of the tunnel, right? We're so in the dark that we're just kind of confused and stuck. And, and, and it's also scary to divulge or to spend that much time on something and then not get what you want. Right. That is very much a, a, just an exercise in frustration, you know, spending so many times with, you know, maybe a particular branch of pedagogical thinking that, that doesn't yield results. And you're like, why didn't I get, you know, where I needed to go or why didn't it help me? You know, and, and, and that happens a lot. That's so helpful too, because, you know, we forget, especially the teachers that are helping students with voice change, you know, yes. it, it's, it's not a, it's not a, you know, a, a you improve every week and you see a little bit like it's, it's like a roller coaster. You see your poor students having that frustrating week. The voice is just not doing what it is. And, and, and you see, it's very difficult. I know in my teaching studio, I like to have conversations with families about that. And just so that their expectations, they don't get frustrated uh, because that's when a lot of kids quit. Yep. And it's also a loss of social status. I mean, when, you know, when, when, when you can do something well, and then suddenly you can't do something well anymore, there's mm-hmm. a big psychological hit to your social, you know, the, uh, standing. And so, you know, that begins a process of fear, right? Where you're like, oh, oh. no, and, you know, and I can't do that. And oh, my gosh, or it's like being in a sport and falling down, right? Or something horrible happening. And you're like, oh, my gosh, how did I fell down? How can I ever go? I can't play that again. I can never go back again and do that. Um, but you you know, it's, it's that resilience, right? Or grit, right? It's that idea of grit and like teaching students to accept that this is a process. And I think the best thing that you said was, you know, you need to prepare them for what's going to happen and prepare their families so that when it begins to happen, it's not a crisis. It's, right. yep, we expect this. We expect this to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and as it does happen, I, I think the most sort of valuable reminder that I keep in front of my eyes is every time I work with this student, it's a different voice. Oh, that is so good. 
you know, I am good. never going to, no two lessons are going to be the same in, in the, so far as what's going on because that voice won't be responding the same. Mm-hmm. So I am never as a teacher ever a person who says, come to me voice, hmm. come over and do what I want you to do. I am always coming to that voice and saying, what is this voice doing? What's going on with this voice? You know, one of my big inspirations from a values perspective in a, in a, in a very large degree is Cornelius Reed. Because one of the things that he laid out in his work that I think is so genius is this idea of observational pedagogy, that you are watching an organic occurrence, a naturally occurring thing, and you are looking at it and observing it, and you are tending to it and meeting it where it's at, rather than trying to take a, for example, as an analogy, take a plant that is not conducive to a particular climate or humidity Mm. level, sunshine level, and saying, well, plant, you just have to live in the sunshine. This is just what you have to do, plant. You know, that plant's (laughs) going to die. And that plant will literally die because it just is not, that that environment is not conducive to that plant's development. And so then if I look at that as a teacher, my first question is, what is my, what is the environment that I'm putting this voice Mm -hmm. into? And the environment is the scales that mm-hmm. I'm giving the student, mm-hmm. the vowels that I give the student, the um, the loudness that I make the student sing with, and then above that, in a musical sense, what repertoire am I giving? Mm-hmm. Is this little is this little flower gonna grow in this particular environment, or are they gonna be like a little, you know, plant buffeted by the winds of and rain? And what's gonna happen here? And I think these 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 sort of images appeal to me because I grew up on a farm, oh, so I love it. you know. And my father is a landscaper. So I think I get it by my dad, you know, who tended plants and grew plants and grew trees. So for me, as a person who's a voice teacher, I see no difference between being a landscaper or being a horticulturalist and being a vocal teacher because they're both the same. Mm. In fact, the oldest, uh, older pedagogical texts were called voice cultivation, which I love. I love that term, which is a desire, which is a a uh, comparison to the voice as an organic piece of nature that we are going to make grow and develop just like a beautiful tree or a flower or a plant. And and you must tend to it and you have to care for it just like you do a plant. Mm-hmm. You can't treat it harshly. You can't put it in a bad environment. You can't put it in the sun too long. So I think that as a teacher, I'm always thinking about that environment. And for that student who's going through the change or mm-hmm. going through that transition, I'm always thinking, great, this voice is this is what's happening to this little plant right now. What can I do to keep this plant going where it needs to go and tending to it as it develops, which obviously is different for every person Mm -hmm. when they are going through that. So no two lessons will be the same. Mm. And, and, and and while they, there may be physiological things that we can expect, they may arrive before we expect them or after we expect them. So, you know, again, patience is the name of the game. And, and I think that in the environmental, for me, I think the greatest sort of takeaway for me is just that environmental stimulus idea. I the think idea that, that is so helpful. I think that's so helpful. Now, I have a question for you. It's, yeah. it's in in aligns with this conversation. So I 100% agree we have to meet the students where they are at and cater to exactly what they, you know, whether it's it's um, uh, physical, whether it's emotional, mm-hmm. whether it is, uh, you know, we we are dealing with students with lots of trauma and anxiety, and that plays into it as well. Now, I have a question: What if 
What if it's the student that is not meeting their voice where it's at? What if the biggest struggle is they want to be somewhere else in their vocal journey? How would you handle that gracefully? Now, if you would like to hear the answer to my question, you're going to have to tune in next week. Justin and I continue this amazing conversation and share some really wonderful teaching strategies as well. A big thank you to Justin for his time and his expertise. If you would like more information, please check out the show notes and you will find links to our podcast page. You will also find links to Justin's wonderful teaching blog at petersonvoicestudio.com. Now, before I go, please make sure to leave a rating or a review of this podcast. Those help us so much. And if you are purchasing our products on Amazon, don't be afraid to leave a rating and a review there too. If you are looking for fun and fantastic resources, please visit our free resources page and try some of the full voice resources with your students. As always, I'm wishing you inspired teaching and happy singing. Thank you for listening to the Full Voice Podcast. For more information and teacher resources, please visit our website at thefullvoice.com. May my canoe music. Canoe music.ca.